You're listening to Radio Korama 102.3 FM here at Camp Korama.us on the internet. Uh, beautiful uh, day here at Camp. A little humid, but that's okay. We can deal with that. Had some rain, but the uh, ground sucks up the water and it's all good. We are here coming into Shabbat and I had a great lunch today. It was pizza. Uh, the pizza was okay. I mean, it's not like New York pizza, but it was awfully good. But what made it a great lunch is that I met Professor Benjamin Summer here at camp. Professor, welcome to our Upan here at Radio Kowama. Thanks very much. It's great to be back. I, I did radio when I was in Mahon back in 1979. And boy, you've got a much bigger setup than we had back then. Well, that's nice to hear. In fact, just last night, you know, we had a show kibitzing with Curlin on the air, and Keith Blumenthal actually called, and he ran radio back in the day, and uh, we were happy to hear from him. Oh, wonderful. And uh, I think I may have mentioned your voice. It struck me, right? You mentioned that uh, up at lunch, that I've got a good radio voice. I've, I've, I've heard that often. Well, you know, uh, that is good, and it is impressive. I've been told I have a good face for radio. <laughs> All right, that's an old joke. It's Rabbi Curlin's okay. joke. Okay. I've never heard it before, so it's new <laughs> for me. Well, there you go. Professor Summer is here uh, teaching, and we're going to hear about what he's doing here uh, at Camper on the Berkshires. I'll pay him Ushmanasrei. Professor Summer is a professor up at JTS, and uh, welcome. So it's it's the first time you're here teaching, and I wanted to get to know you a little bit and find out w- why you were uh, sent up the river here. Sent up the river. <laughs> it is up the river. It is up the river indeed. Uh, well, for the past five or six uh, summers, uh, I've been going to various Rama camps. Uh, I was at Wisconsin. I've been at Darom down in Georgia. I've been at Nyack, uh, mostly teaching staff. Uh, and this summer, for whatever reason, uh, they sent me here to Berkshires, back to my own local Rama, since I live in New Jersey. And this is this is the Rama that I went to when I was uh, a kid growing up in New Jersey, and that uh, maybe my uh, my youngest daughter might be going to. She's at Nyack at the moment, uh, but maybe next year she'll be here. Uh, so uh, it's nice to be back at Berkshires and teaching some Torah here. So normally you think of uh, people coming up teaching uh, the campers. Uh, tell us about teaching staff. It's a different dynamic, right? I, say, I think it's a very different dynamic. That's pretty much what I do when I when I visit a Ramah. Uh, I was teaching some uh, some campers this year, kids who are going into Mahon. Uh, but that's a little unusual. Normally what I'm doing is I'm teaching the college students who are the madrichim. I'm teaching uh, the specialty staff who might be college students, uh, might be a bit out of college. And uh, often I do stuff for the ahadut staff uh, who are a little bit older and, you know, sort of that stuff is at a higher level. Sometimes I'll teach in Hebrew. Uh, in Wisconsin I've taught in Hebrew, but usually I'm teaching uh, in English. What do you teach at JTS? I'm a professor of Bible. Uh, I think my business cards says Bible and ancient Semitic languages. So primarily I'm teaching courses to rabbinical students, education students, graduate students, the undergraduate students. I have cantorial students uh, in my classes as well. Uh, And I'm teaching any of a variety of courses, mostly in the area of Tanakh, of Bible. 
Uh, occasionally, some of the courses also might be co-listed in another area, such as Jewish liturgy or Jewish thought. And a lot of my own research really deals with the interface or the interplay between the study of the Bible and, uh, and the history of Jewish thought. So uh, your background, you're, you're a PhD. Uh, Correct. And we, we, I'm just curious where, where you did your studies. My PhD in the end came from the University of Chicago. I actually began my graduate studies in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University. Then I went to Brandeis, to their department of Near East and Judaic Studies. Um, and when my advisor at Brandeis, my doctoral advisor, uh, Michael Fishbane, uh, whose granddaughter I'm pretty sure is here, uh, if I'm not mistaken, at, uh, at Berkshires. Um, when, I, when he took a job at the University of Chicago, as is often the case in, in doctoral studies, I went with him. Uh, so in the end, my PhD, the actual piece of paper came from the University of Chicago. So uh, well, you've been all around and right now you're in Wingdale and we're happy to have you up here. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned when you're in Wisconsin, you, you teach Hebrew, you're teaching in Hebrew. Correct, for the, uh, for the Mishlachat, for the Israeli staff. Ah, for the Israeli staff, okay. Correct. Okay. Although I actually, at JTS, do give some courses in Hebrew this coming semester, starting you know the first week of September. I'll be giving a course on biblical poetry, but the language of instruction will be in Hebrew. But that's a little bit different than what I might do with Mishlachat. Uh, mishlachat, they're Israelis, so it's just in Hebrew. When I teach a course with the language of instruction uh, in Hebrew at JTS, that's specifically for American students who want to improve their Hebrew, who want to improve their ability to discuss academic issues in Hebrew, who want to read stuff in Hebrew, secondary literature. So there I'll make a point of speaking slowly, paraphrasing uh, the assignments of the secondary literature. They're in Hebrew, but they're not terribly long. and in the PDFs I go through and kind of mark them up to sort of translate some hard words. That's a little bit different when I teach in JTS at Hebrew than if I'm teaching actually Mishlachat in Hebrew, or if I, I've, given, uh, I've given lectures, I've given courses at Hebrew University um, to Israelis, that, that's a little bit different. So he, here at camp, mm -hmm. what are you doing? Who, 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 are you, who have you been instructing? So here at Berkshires, actually, unusually for me, I, I have been teaching a small group of, uh, of campers, kids who are going into 10th grade. Um, <clears throat> and I'm also teaching uh, a few limuds for staff members. Uh, there are a few that were kind of arranged in advance, which actually are much smaller. But in addition, let's say one of the Rashi Eida asked me to come and speak to her Eida. It was supposed to go from five to six. We were talking about Revelation and biblical law. Uh, in fact, we, we ended up going from about 5 to 6.45. A few of them had to leave, but a lot of them just stayed. Uh, so I'm also doing some teaching that kind of just comes up informally or, you know, people know I'm here and they come and ask me to do something. And some of that teaching ends up, interestingly enough, being some of the most exciting and really interesting stuff, the stuff that happens informally or at the last minute. You know, that that's one of the things that I love about coming here to camp and having the... Uh privilege to bring our radio program up is is the way the, these things percolate here as a community, just as the, the way you ended up here in our studio uh, mm -hmm. over uh, some pizza. Over some pizza. If I sat salad. at the other table, I wouldn't be here right now. There you go. <laughs> or if you skipped the pizza and went right to dessert, you wouldn't have been of it. But thank God you had the pizza and you're here. There was dessert? I missed dessert. <laughs> Darn. So, um, 
So, you know, you mentioned the reason I had picked up on that Wisconsin and Hebrew business is, um, you know, I sometimes speak to old old timers. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm an old timer, but not necessarily an old old timer here at camp. But when I when I say old timers right now, I'm talking about camp old timers, and it I don't know if it's nostalgia or if if it's their conflated memories. But sometimes I get the impression there was more Hebrew at camp than there is today. Uh, and now, you would have no way of knowing that here, I don't think. But the reason I bring it up is um, I have three adult children. And as we mentioned much, much earlier, you know, they all went to the, through the day school programs here in New York City, Heschel, Schechter, different years. And interestingly enough, when one of my boys was really a small little boy, I guess first grade, second grade, and we were having a parent-teacher. The parents' meetings at one of the schools as an orientation. And I I asked, you know, the instruction is is Ivrit be Ivrit, I assume, because that's how I learned when I went to the Solomon Shakti movement, Ivrit be Ivrit, and they said no. So these, you know, top-notch, Hebrew day schools in Manhattan, uh, they were not teaching Ivrit Ivrit in the Judaic studies. And they made that specific decision. They, they felt the bottom line is they couldn't get the staff to do that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I thought uh, that was interesting. Now, I, I'm, I, I don't think, um, I, I know for sure, I didn't come out of school as a Judaic Talmud Chacham. But I did come out being able to speak some Hebrew. So I was wondering your thoughts on that. Well, I think, first of all, it does vary from Ramah to Ramah. Um, to be honest, in Wisconsin, there still is a lot more Hebrew than in Berkshires for whatever reason. Uh, down in Nyack, the day camp in Nyack, about six years ago, began a new program called Sha'ar for the very little kids, the, the smallest kids there. Who are like you know five years old, six years old, uh, and that was a Hebrew immersion program. Uh, they did this experimentally. They weren't sure if there would be demand for this, but they decided to give it a shot because uh, I think that what you said before, uh, I think that's a widespread and pretty accurate impression that uh, you know 30 years ago, certainly 50 years ago, there certainly was a lot more Hebrew at Camp Ramah than there is today, and I think that the Sha'ar program at Ramah Nayak is. A, an attempt to bring a little of that back. They weren't sure if it would work, if American Jewish parents would be interested in this kind of program. By year three of the program, it was so heavily oversubscribed that they had to institute a lottery to decide which kids would get into it. Uh, My daughter is now in what, her third or fourth year? I guess her fourth year in the Sha'ar program. And uh, it's a wonderful program. Uh, Kids who come from homes that are not Hebrew speaking by about week four, they are speaking Hebrew, and if they're there for the whole summer, they really make extraordinary progress, because, you know, little kids still have that natural neurological ability just to absorb language, and that's why they're doing it with the little kids, and then they keep it up every year, so, you know, now they've got Sha'ar going even into the older Edot. Um, they've got a great staff of Israelis, and from watching the videos that we that are posted on YouTube, and also from you know, from having been in the camp at Nyack, 
it's clear that these Israelis, some of them 19 years old, 18 years old, right before the army, some of them just after the army, it's clear that they do have a method. They, they've had some training in what what they're doing with these kids, because a lot of some of these kids are from Israeli families, but a lot are from families where there's no Hebrew at all, and so watching them do things, you can probably go onto YouTube and you know Google it or something and find some of these things from the Nyack Shire Sha'ar program. Um, they're repeating words in certain ways, they're speaking slowly in certain ways, and they're doing an amazing job. So, so I think it does vary. I think also, sometimes people might complain, oh, 50 years ago there was more Hebrew, as if though something's gone wrong, as if though, you know, Ramah made some mistake. I think it's, it's just the case that historically American Judaism and American culture generally in the year 2018 we're in a different place than American Judaism was back in 1960. The abilities of people to speak Hebrew, the connection to Eastern European Torbut Shalivrit, uh, the, the, the Zionist Hebrew culture from Eastern Europe that existed in the 1950s when there were still people who came from there, um, all that has changed. And so realistically, it's just not going to happen. It's just, just not going to happen that American Jews in 2018 will be as strong with Hebrew as they were in the year 1960 or 1965 or even 1970. And Frank, the truth of the matter is Americans generally are very bad at language learning. We've got a huge country. You can get in a car, drive for days and days, and never need to know any language other than English. You know, in, in Germany, if you drove for days and days, you, you could go through five, six different countries and need to speak five, six different languages. In Luxembourg, if you drive for about half an hour, you'll need to know a few different languages. But America is different. We're not so strong with languages here. I actually think the different Ramahs are doing a pretty good job of, of fighting a good fight on this, but it's a different fight than it was 50 years ago. Um, it, it's a harder fight, and Speaking realistically as an educator, having taught at JTS, having taught at Northwestern University, and I really put, especially when I was director of Jewish studies back at Northwestern, I really put a lot of emphasis on teaching Hebrew. Speaking realistically, I, I really think it's accurate to say that by and large, the Ramah system, the Hebrew cup is one-third full, is a more accurate way of describing things than two-thirds empty. Um, Stuff like Sha'ar shows that we can push it a little bit further. Maybe we can get a little bit better at this. But I think that it, it's actually a pretty impressive job being done already. You know, there's a great program here. It's it's new. You wouldn't know it's new, but Maya Milin, mm -hmm. and it is fantastic. And for our listeners, for our listeners who listen to to Kawarma, they know about it. But if someone's just tuning in, it's it's a wonderful program. The kids are nominated for using. Uh, Hebrew words and their conversations and Erev Shabbat, they're called up, those who are nominated to get a chutzah, a shirt, mm -hmm. and, and oh, everyone gets so excited, and it is just really a wonderful program to encourage, uh, so kol kavod to the organizations that put that together. And by the way, I think, you know, in many of the Schechter schools, I think in some of the other schools, you know, that aren't Schechter schools, there is still some Ivrit be Ivrit. I think that there's sometimes tactical decisions, or not really more strategic decisions, I should say, 
that the educators m make as to which classes ought to be Ivrit be Ivrit and which aren't. But certainly my kids at the Schechter in New Milford, New Jersey, uh, their, their Humash classes, their Bible classes were Ivrit be Ivrit. Um, my high school age kids who go to SAR, um, many though not all of the classes are Ivrit be Ivrit. There still is some of that, but I think in some cases it makes sense to do that, in some cases it doesn't. I think that back when everything was Ivrit be Ivrit, maybe we just lost some kids. Um, and, and that was a shame. Maybe being a little bit more selective about when and with which kids to do that is, a, is really a good pedagogical decision. There's no question, as my kids were growing up, I was impressed with some of the classes and the theological concepts they were getting, and, you know, Talmud class, the, t the type of depth they went into, much more than I ever went into as a kid. Of course, I was learning it in free, free, free. Mm -hmm. So yes, they were learning it free, 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 but because they didn't have that barrier, they were able to get a much more nuanced uh, education. I saw that. On the other Correct. hand, well, it's a give and take. Yeah. It, it, there's a certain number of hours in a day. If you're going to do Ivrit be Ivrit, in some ways the Judaic studies curriculum will suffer. If you want a more robust, more serious, deeper Judaic studies curriculum, you may have to sacrifice some of the Ivrit be Ivrit. And I tell you, Americans are just so bad at learning languages that I think a lot of people, if they really want to learn Hebrew well, they'll probably have to go spend a year in Israel, and that's the way to do it. And, and so, you know, maybe this is a, a, a decision that has really made some sense as far as how to use those hours of the day at Schechter schools and other day schools here in the United States. I must say, in some of my trips to Israel where I was hoping to practice some Hebrew, everyone speaking English, when I first went to Israel, you know, it was very hard to find a broadcast in English. You had to you know, I was trying to understand the news in, in Hebrew on the radio because that's what was there. Of course, today it's a different story. And um, Well, if you want to learn Hebrew in Israel, the truth is Jerusalem is not the best place to go. Beersheba or Haifa, go to Beersheba University that is Ben-Gurion, go to Haifa University, take their ulpans. Those are better places to learn Hebrew because in Beersheba, you're not going to have as many English speakers. In Haifa, your roommate in the dorm may, is not going to be a native English speaker. It may very well be a native Arabic speaker. And so I think that for learning Hebrew, especially over the summer, if you're going for a summer Lopan, you're much better going to Haifa or Beersheba. But in Jerusalem, of course, there's tons and tons of English speakers. Jerusalem is a very atypical Israeli city. Um, even in Tel Aviv, there's a fair number of, of English speakers. To immerse yourself, you're much better off going to Haifa or Beersheba. In fact, I, th I don't know if this is still the case, but for the, U for the University of Chicago, no, I'm no, sorry, the University of California year abroad program, although it was affiliated with Hebrew University f during the academic year, they would send their kids either to Haifa or Beersheba to learn Hebrew for this reason. They wouldn't, although the, the Hebrew University Ulpan is spectacular, but because it's such a more English speaking city, they had their kids go this may still be the case, I'm just, I'm not sure, uh, but they had their kids go to a different city uh, to really, um, to really build their Hebrew skills. Well, that, that is interesting. So I, I know, you know, it's coming up to Shabbat. I promised I wouldn't keep you here that long. Uh, but uh, I did, um, so you're here at camp for 10 days. Mm -hmm. So can you go into a little, just a little detail about some of the, uh, 
work you've done. You mentioned you had a successful uh, educational uh, episode with with the kids in Machon, I think you said. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, can you give us a flavor of, of the uh, discussion or the subjects you were discussing here? You know, it's been quite varied. Actually, with the Mahon kids, I started our first session, we did a close look at the psalm that we're going to start saying at the beginning of the month, month of Elul, uh, Psalm 27, Le David Adonai Orivishi Mimi Ira. We say that throughout the entire month going into Rosh Hashanah, and then for the first three weeks of the month of Tishrei from Rosh Hashanah, we continue it up until Hoshana Rabbah, up until the end of Sukkot itself. So I thought it would be uh, a worthwhile thing. You know, it's so often the case with, with texts that show up in the Siddur that we Jews say them quickly and kind of mumble them. That's kind of how we say these things. Uh, and the fact that these are really beautiful poems and the fact that these poems have really serious ideas is something that we often just don't have time to notice when we're quickly mumbling through it. So both with the Mahon kids and with some of the staff that I was teaching, we took a look at Psalm 27. Uh, I think it's a, it's a really beautiful poem. It's also a really interesting poem in the way that it mixes a strong faith in God with the open expression of a lot of doubts about God. So I wanted to use that Psalm as a way of showing what a mature Jewish religiosity looks like that it isn't necessarily a perfect childish faith or a simplistic faith. The Jewish religion makes room for a certain amount of worry, a certain amount of doubt, and a certain amount of, um, of honesty in a, in a relationship with God. It's not always, it's not always that everything's perfect. Uh, often one might think that, that maybe a religious text like a, a text from the Book of Psalms that has a prominent role in the Siddur, in the prayer book, would go from doubt to faith. But Psalm 27 is a really interesting text because it goes from faith to doubt. And maybe that's a description of a more mature, of a journey towards a more mature Judaism. So with these Mahon kids who are going into 10th grade and certainly with the staff, you know, who are already college age, I thought it was a, a, a good Psalm to give a sense of what it means to grow into a more mature Jewish faith, a more mature emunah, a more mature form of religiosity, uh, and that things, Judaism doesn't make the claim that things are always as simple as, uh, as people think they are. So that's where I started with, with a few of the different groups that I was, that I was teaching. Um, we, one of the kids in the Mahon group seemed really excited about the poetry and asked if we could do some modern Israeli poetry. Of course, all of my modern Israeli poetry is back in my house in Teaneck. But there are so many people from Teaneck here in Berkshires that I was able to find a staff member who was having a day off. I called his mother, who went over to my house. My, I called my wife, and I told her where to find these particular books. She brought them over, and this kid uh, brought these books up here to Berkshires. And I made a few Xeroxes, and we actually then continued that theme of a mixture of faith and doubt in religious poetry by looking at some poetry by the great Israeli poet Zelda, Zelda Schneerson. And uh, then we looked at uh, a poem the next day by Yehuda Amichai, the great Israeli poet uh, Yehuda Amichai, uh, which in very, very different ways also mix a certain amount of religiosity and secularism in the case of Amichai, 
or faith and doubt in the case of Zelda. Uh, we talked about that. I talked a little bit about how you see similar themes in the poetry of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I say that in all seriousness. At the end of Nebraska, he's got some poems on religious themes, some songs on religious themes that really compare very, very nicely to Psalm 27 and Zelda and Amichai. Uh, so that's an example of what I've been doing. And, and yeah, it's, it's fun stuff to talk about. So I, I, I know your, your specialty is Bible, biblical history. Uh, I wouldn't have thought uh, poetry uh, comes into that, yet you, you had been quoting a little poetry before we went on the air. So poetry... Well, actually, one of my areas, uh, I'm currently writing a commentary on the Book of Psalms uh, for the Jewish Publication Society. And, the, and my first book was a study of the second part of the book of Isaiah, which is all poetry. It was really a poetic analysis of the way the poet who wrote that material borrows from older texts. It's, a, it's, a, it's an analysis of what people in comparative literature would say is poetic influence and allusion. So actually poetry really is one of my areas of specialty. Uh, and I think of myself not only as a Bible scholar, I really think of myself broadly as a, as a scholar of all areas of Jewish thought and culture. So because one of my areas of research and teaching is biblical poetry, I am also very, very interested in reading medieval Hebrew poetry and modern Hebrew poetry. It's all a single condition, a tradition. It's all on a single trajectory. And so I, when I teach, I do sometimes like mixing in a little bit of later Hebrew poetry into the biblical poetry that I, that I tend to focus on. You know, I'll just mention, I don't know if you know her, the Rosh Ivrit here, Leah von, uh, Leah von Siegel, mm -hmm. and uh, she's a great friend of, of radio, and um, she put together this year, and our station manager, Shai Mizrahi, edited it and produced it, a fantastic five-part series coming up to Tu Ba'av with, mm -hmm. with the modern Israeli poets and then these poetry set to music. So uh, I'm just giving a plug for the podcast on Tu Ba'av on oh, Koramah.us. Yeah, I, I know Leah. Leah used to be the head of Hebrew at Ramah, Wisconsin. So I worked with her and I worked with her staff back when I was in Wisconsin. She's just wonderful. And it was I was just delightful to, to arrive here and on uh, my first day and see that Leah's here as well. Uh, so I didn't know about that podcast, though. I'll make sure to download that. Thanks very much. Okay, very good, very good. Can I download the podcasts for my iPhone? For my, um, I've got not an iPhone. For my Android phone, you can uh, you can uh, listen and download these podcasts uh, on uh, at .us. You can use the uh, Android app at the Google Play Store or the uh, so on Play Store. What would I? App. Is there an we, app? We are. It? There is a Korama app. Kol Ramah, mm -hmm. uh, you can you can go right to kolramah.us on your Android or download the app. It's a whole thing. Gotcha. So uh, I can go to the uh, on my on my Android phone. I can go to the Google Play, Play, Play Store, Store and just Kol type in Kol Ramah with a K. Kol Ramah with a K. K or Radio Kol Ramah. Gotcha. Kol okay, Ramah. I'll do that. I I, I love uh, I love working with Leah. So I didn't know that she had this. That you were doing this program, so I'm gonna I'll, I'll enjoy listening to that. All right, Thanks. excellent, excellent. So, um, it it is great to have you here. Let, let me just ask you, I I don't want to stay too long, and this really is may put you on the spot, but um, do you could you is there a poem? I mean, short couple of line 
poem and you don't have your books here your voice is so great and you your Hebrew so beautiful and and the little bit of poetry we were discussing in the Chadar Ochel, so nice. If if there was a couple of lines or a paragraph of a or stanza of a poem, you could re- read to us, say to us, and explain to us. Wouldn't that be a nice way before Shabbat? Sure. Let me let me do just a few lines from three different poems uh, in Hebrew uh, that'll get us into a few different periods of the Hebrew language. So I thought that that might be a good idea. For one thing, we're, right now we're going into, well, we're into the, the period between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, so all of the Haftarot are coming from the second part of the book of Isaiah. And my own first book, my first academic book, the book that got me tenure, um, was a study of the way that that poet, uh, we call that poet Deutero-Isaiah, or second Isaiah, um, that poet, that prophet, always wrote his or her own prophecies. We don't know the name of this uh, of this prophet. We don't know whether it's a male or a female. There were female prophets in ancient Israel, so I don't know whether to say he or she. Uh, but that prophet, in all of the poetry that that prophet wrote, is constantly borrowing from earlier poetries, constantly taking words from Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and from the Torah, from the Book of Psalms, taking words and phrases and weaving them into new prophecies. And so what I'd like to quote, therefore, is a line from a modern Israeli poet who does something very similar in a different way with a different goal, uh, but is also always weaving old prophecies into his own prophet, uh, his own poetry, and that's the great, great uh, Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai. So he's got a, he has a poem in his second-to-last collection of poetry called Ani Navi Ani, uh, I Am a Poor Prophet. And it begins with the words, Hanivi'im ha'gedolim hishlichu et machatzit nevo'otehem kumo sigariot me'ushanot lemechetza, ani melaket otam lahem nevo'ot aniot. That means um, the great prophets of old throughout their prophecies like cigarettes that were half-smoked, I collect them up and make my own new prophecies from them. And it's, it's a kind of daring, but I think very, very apt description of the whole Hebrew tradition of literature, where we're always recycling and giving new uses to older material. So in a funny way, I'm quoting Yehuda Amichai as a tip of the hat to Second Isaiah, whom we're reading at this time of year. I'll do one medieval poem, just a couple of lines. Everybody knows this poem. Lots of us quote it. Lots of people who are listening can quote it from memory. Very few people know how to recite it metrically as a poem. Uh, and so I'm going to just do a few lines out of a Don Alam, which follows a certain metrical pattern that nobody really knows. And when you hear it done this way, suddenly it sounds much more like a poem. Uh, so that would be Adon Olam Asher Malach. Beterem kol itzir nivra leetna sa behevzo kol azaimelech shimon yikra. That's the rhythm of the entirety of Adon Alam, a short syllable followed by three long syllables. Da dun dun dun, da dun dun dun. And when you read it that way, you get a sense of why it really is a poem. It, it has a rhythm, it has a very, actually a very strict meter. Um, 
I'm not that great at reciting that kind of meter. These are actually meters that are borrowed from medieval Arabic poetry. But when you get somebody who really knows how to do those medieval, recite the medieval Arabic poems correctly, um, there's a real music uh, to the, that kind of medieval, uh, that kind of medieval Hebrew poetry. And also just to give a sense of the rhythm, I mentioned Psalm 27. So let me uh, let me just read a bit of Psalm 27, pausing at the end of every poetic line to give a sense of how this really is a poem. It has lineation, it has lines, it has a rhythm, and to appreciate any psalm as a poem, it helps to sort of pause at the end of the poetic lines. Adonai oriv yish'i mimi ira, Adonai ma'oz chayai mimi efchad, Bikrov alai mire'im le'echolet b'sari, Tsarai v'oivai li, I could keep on going, but that probably, I hope, is just enough to give people a little bit of a sense of how psalms are really poetry. Usually when we're reciting it every morning, we're in a rush to get to work. We don't have time to really do it right. But once in a while, to recite a psalm as the poem that it is, uh, I, I think can be can be a very very nice thing, and in because of the nature of biblical poetry, often the rhythm even works pretty well in translation. So if you can get a siddur that lines the psalms the psalms up as poetry, like Eddie Feld's new conservative siddur with the red cover that just came out, a lot of congregations are adopting it. If you get let's say Eddie Feld's siddur, you really can recite the poems even in English as poetry because of the way he lays out the lines as poetic lines. You know, hearing you speak really help our listeners, I'm sure they pick up on it, the quality of the education here at Ramah. Wow, the kids, to, to be exposed to a professor like yourself, I'm just blown away. I'm so happy you're here. You know, it just reminds me of a story my brother tells me. I have a younger brother, a couple of years younger than me. So, uh, we both went to day schools, and he, he speaks Hebrew very well. And when he was in college, he took an advanced Hebrew class, and um, they were doing Chaim Nachman Bialik, and they're going around the table reading. And when it came his turn to read, instead of that nice Tzvadi uh, uh, accent we all learned, mm -hmm. he did it in Ashkenazi Hebrew. Yeah. Boy, he got an A plus on that because that was how you were supposed to read Chaim. Correct. That particular piece Correct. in Chaim Nachman Bialik. With early poetry by Bialik also with the poetry of Chernichovsky, they wrote in the Ashkenazic accent that they were used to. Now Bialik switched over at a certain point to Sephardic, but with the ones that they wrote earlier, if you don't read it with the rhythm of Ashkenazic Hebrew, it's not poetry, you lose the meter. Um, so for example, Chernichovsky, let me just think if I can remember these lines offhand. Um, he has a poem, El Mul Pesel Apollo. Um, uh, it's, it's about a statue of the Greek god Apollo. And if you read it in Sephardic Hebrew that we now all speak, it doesn't sound like a pole. Bate Elecha, El Nishkach Me'olam. It sounds like prose. But if you read it in Ashkenazic, the way that Chernichovsky wrote it, it's poetry. Bosi Elecha, El Nishkach Me'olam. El Yarche Kedem, the Mashuhu, I can't remember the, what's the next word. Um, 
vishanim, achronim, achronos. It's got a rhythm to it. Actually, it's got a strict meter to it, but only if you know how to read it correctly. Uh, so you, yes, your brother was, uh, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> Professor Benjamin Summer, thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us here on Radio Koramai. I look forward to spending Shabbat with you. I know you're going to be giving a shira that I and my wife is going to be up here that we'll go to. Look forward to that and look forward to uh, next year again hearing what you're doing, I hope. Todah Thanks for the invitation. Thank I you. I really enjoyed it. Mamash Toda. Toda Rabah.